Take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. We're actually getting near the first, to the end of the first section of Isaiah that acts as a kind of overture to the rest of the book and demonstrates both a unity and a trajectory, a movement. <clears throat> Themes are introduced, they're reprised, they're expanded, until here in chapter 11 we are pushed forward in time, pushed to the boundaries of human experience on earth as we know it, to the end of history, into the future when the Messiah shall reign over all. And that fits the flow of the book so far. In chapter 1, the original divine intent in creation has been spelt out. The restoration of Zion, that is, the people of God in their core believing form, has been predicted. The eschatological, that is, the last days, assembly of the nations of the world, gathering together at Jerusalem to the temple, to Zion, the city of God, in chapter 2, the sign of the virgin's son called Emmanuel, who will be the possessor of the Holy Land, until the establishment of the righteous rule of the King of Kings in chapter 9. All these elements are brought together here in this 11th chapter. And you can see the immediate context is a context of devastation. If you just glance back to the end of chapter 10, verse 33-34 there, you'll see a, a, a metaphor or, or a, a vision or a description of a, a felled forest. If you've ever been driving through the countryside and after a forest fire and seen the devastation that's left behind, or perhaps after a, a tornado has been sweeping through the area, you see the sheer devastation and desolation that is left. That's a kind of picture that Isaiah paints there. What is this forest that has fallen? Well, it's Assyria, the great uh, nation empire that's going to be, that is the immediate threat at this stage in Isaiah's life, the immediate threat to the people of God. It itself will fall. It's Judah and northern Israel. They will fall. They will be devastated as well. They will be cast down and left until there is nothing left of the forest of their pride, except a field of stumps. But not only is Assyria the aggressor under the judgment of God, but northern Israel and Judah, the people of God, have been under the judgment of God. So you imagine the scene. Devastation, desolation, nothing stirs, no birds fly. There's an eerie atmosphere gripping the place, death reigns, but not quite. You come to chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall take, shall bear fruit. After, after the hardening of the hearts that God ordained, after the destruction after the unbelief of Israel's kings and Judah's kings. The true Israel still has a future. That is, the believing Israel of God still has a future because of Emmanuel, 
because of God with us. This has been hinted at early on where there's a reference in chapter 4 verse 2 to a branch that is an image of the saving work of God. In chapter 6, a stump will remain from the hardening of the hearts of the people of Judah. There will be a, a stump that is a remnant, a faithful, believing remnant of the people that will remain. And now we discover that from the remnant, the believing remnant of true Israel, there will come forth this individual, because here he is a, an individual, an individual who will bring together all those other bits and pieces of the picture, the profile that has been being built up for us, the Emmanuel, the Prince, the King of Kings. This figure will emerge, and he will emerge as the king that we need, the king that we need. Look at the qualifications of the king in verses 1 and 2. There we're told about his royal pedigree, because he will come from the stump of Jesse. Now, that's an unusual expression in that the only person ever in the Bible that is described as the son of Jesse is King David himself. So in using this expression, Isaiah is signaling to us that a new David is going to come, a new David, David, a man after God's heart, David who was the best king that Israel ever had, David who was given a promise that from his own from his own body, there would come an offspring who would have an eternal kingdom. He would be the king of kings. He would be God's anointed one. He would be God's Messiah. And Isaiah is signaling that he will come. He will arrive on the seed, seeing this other Messiah. And he will be born in humble surroundings. Not only will he be a descendant of King David, but he will come as a stump from a deforested area. Out of desolation, he will emerge. And you notice what he says about the divine character of this individual. He goes on to talk about him as being full of the Holy Spirit of God. Back earlier on in Isaiah's day, back in the days of the temple and the tabernacle, following the divine commands, Moses ordered that they make a great candlestick, a great seven-branched candlestick. This candlestick was meant to do two things. It was meant, first of all, to be a, a symbol or a replica of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, which was the initial temple, the initial place where men and women, Adam and Eve, encountered God and had a relationship with God. It was also a symbol of the witness of Israel to the world, the witness that God was among his people, that God was there with his people, and that his Holy Spirit was present with his people. Here, the Messiah, the second and last Adam, will have the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit upon him. He will be the bearer of the whole fullness of divine energy, and it will be permanent. Notice what it says the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. People couldn't believe without the help of the Spirit. People couldn't be born again in the Old Testament times without the Holy Spirit bringing them to life, giving them faith, so that they could trust in the promise of the Messiah. But in the Old Testament, too, when it comes to gifts and usefulness, 
the Holy Spirit would come upon people and then depart from them. That's why David prays in his prayer, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit in relation to salvation, but in relation to his active ministry in him and through him to others. But do you notice that when this Messiah comes, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest. He will come to rest. He will come to be at home. He will not ever move from or be removed from the Messiah. He will be once and for all at rest there. And when the Lord Jesus came into the world at his baptism, do you remember? We read in Matthew's gospel that the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit of the triune God rests upon permanently the person of the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus. Why is that? Because He is the perfect tabernacle. He is the perfect temple. You know the Holy Spirit is often in the Bible associated with fire and therefore is often associated with the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God that rested on the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a vision one day in which he saw this symbol of the presence of God, the, the fire by day, the fire by day, sorry, by night and the cloud by day. He sees this representation, the Shekinah glory of God exiting the temple, going towards the Mount of Olives, doing a quick left turn, and then at full speed, going over the desert to Babylon. In other words, the glory departs from Jerusalem. The Spirit of God moves away from the temple and doesn't reappear again until He rests upon the Messiah, Jesus. And He comes to a final and complete stop. And there He dwells. You see, that's what we need. We need someone like this. We can't save ourselves. We can't help ourselves. We need someone from the outside. And Messiah comes from the outside with the Spirit of God resting upon Him. So He has the Spirit resting. And then He has the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. It was the Apostle Paul who said about Jesus that He has become for us the wisdom of God. But Paul didn't come up with that idea first. Isaiah did, and he comes up with it here. Wisdom is a true assessment of life and how to live it. Understanding is the ability to see beyond that, deeper, to go to the very heart of issues. In other words, he'll be able to perceive things correctly, and he'll be able to make right decisions. He'll have discernment and wisdom. In the book of Colossians, the Lord Jesus is identified as the second and last Adam. He is the image of the invisible God. And as the image of the invisible God, He has the Spirit resting on Him. And because He has the Spirit resting on Him, He can give the Spirit to us. So, for example, the apostle prays in Colossians 1 verse 9, 
that God would fill us with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We get wisdom and understanding from the Spirit. We get the Spirit from the Messiah who is full of wisdom and understanding. So when we find ourselves in a hard place, and we need to know what's going on all around us, and we need to see deeper into situations, what do we ask for? We ask from God wisdom and understanding. Not only that, but he is a spirit of counsel and might. The Messiah has already been described as a wonderful counselor and the mighty God. The counselor is able to devise a strategy. The mighty man is able to accomplish the strategy. Not only does he do the right, know the right course of action, but he has the power to see it through until he has accomplished it. He has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That means he knows God, not just knows about God, but he knows God personally. He has a personal, intimate relationship with God. A few years ago, I was at a conference, and somebody made this passing comment that somehow lodged. I I was awake during that part of of the talk. And the the comment was this, full-time pastor, part-time Christian. I guess it hit me because I asked myself the question, is that what I am? Am I only, I'm a full-time pastor, that's what I get paid to do, but I'm only a part-time Christian. Do I have a living, vital, ongoing, day-by-day, moment-by-moment, year-from-to-year relationship with God? Do I know God? Do I know Him? Is He personal to me? Is He intimate to me? Do I have a relationship with God? Not only did he have a relationship with God, but he also had the fear of God. That means going beyond the relationship to understand that I am accountable to God. I am answerable to God. I live my life under the eye of God. The fear of God. A pervading consciousness of God's reality and our accountability to him. In other words, you look at the Messiah and you see the Spirit-filled person. And you say to yourself, what does it mean for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Does it mean I go to meetings and get all worked up by the music, whatever kind of music it is, and I cry and I, you know, I'm all emotional about it, and I think, oh, that was a really, you know, the Holy Spirit was really there at that meeting today. I'm sorry, you're going to be disappointed here today. You're going to go out here, and you're not going to be dancing in the aisles as you go out. At least, we're not counting on that happening, but... You never know, but that's not going to be an indication of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what it's like for the Holy Spirit to rest upon someone? Here is Jesus the Messiah in his humanity, and the Holy Spirit rests upon him. And do you see, it's not in religious feelings or ecstatic experiences. It's in the way he thinks and acts. It's in his intellect and character. It's in his mind and will. It's in his personal relationship with God. It's in his life of reverence for God and sense of accountability to God. It's in his loyalty to God. That was what made Jesus different. And he was able to live a normal life filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't have to be using spiritual language all the time or going to prayer meetings all the time. He prayed naturally. And then you read Luke's Gospel, and in Luke's Gospel, do you want, you, if you want an outline of Luke's Gospel, here it is. Jesus in Luke's Gospel is always going to a meal, 
sitting at a meal or coming from a meal. Seriously. That's why they called him a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Apparently, he liked doing normal things like that. But he was full of the Spirit. So what does being full of the Spirit mean? Does it mean being abnormal? Does it mean being totally weird? I mean, we're all going to be weird. Sorry. Yeah, we are. Some of us are weirder than others. I'm so weird, you get to go home feeling normal when you're here. (laughs) Don't understand that. It's kind of reverse psychology. To be filled with the Spirit is these nor- are, relates to these normal things that Jesus has. We look at him and we say, that's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Well, this king was like no other king that Judah or Israel ever had. But look verses four, 3 to 5. Look at his performance. Well, that's his character. What about his performance? And we discover that his character drives his performance. Look at that. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In other words... The greatest pleasure of Jesus' life is going to be doing the will of God. And when he comes into the world, what does he say to people? My food is to do the will of him that sent me, of my Father in heaven. I do only those things that please him. Pleasing God was never an imposition on Jesus. Serving his Father was never something that he regarded as being labor or hard work or a bad thing. It was his pleasure and delight. It was a matter of his fulfillment and his satisfaction. He, he delighted in the will of God. What did that look like in terms of his role as the Messiah? What does it look like? Well, he doesn't judge by what his eyes see. He doesn't just look, as we have to do, at the evidence before our eyes. You know, in, uh, in life, uh, in, in law... That's really all that we have. We can't go any deeper than that. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't. Jesus is able to see what every lawyer would like, every judge on a bench would like to see. He would like to see what the motives of the heart are. Jesus sees right to the heart. There are no impulsive judgments with Jesus. You notice with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. In Revelation 1, Jesus is pictured as having a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, that's not meant to be something you imagine. Uh, there was a minister in a church where I used to be uh, before me, long before me. And uh, when he was going through the book of Revelation, he had an artist in the church paint the various visions in the book of Revelation. And they were really gruesome. I mean, they were weird, really weird. I mean, they would freak you out if you saw these. And the, the very, very first one was this vision of Jesus in chapter 1, and he's got this big sword coming out of his mouth. Well, you're not meant to visualize that. You're meant to interpret that, okay? And you interpret that in this way, the way the Bible tells you to interpret. What is the sword comes out the mouth of Jesus? It's his word. So with his words, in righteousness, he judges the poor. Now, why does the Bible pick that out? It's because power often stems from the rich or the influential. They have the first call on our sympathy and action, especially of rulers, by the way, and leaders. But this ruler will be completely fair, even-handed, and impartial. The New Testament, like the Hebrew Scripture, has no problem with diversity of income or diversity of wealth 
or diversity of status, but it always warns against favoring one over the other. No, this king will be impartial, and this king will have divine power at his disposal. We've already seen God use Assyria as a rod to punish the nations of the world. Back in chapter 5, Assyria, the rod of my anger. We've already seen God using the rod against his own people. And that kind of moral force, that kind of energy that, that, that is at Jesus' disposal is divine energy. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his power. And what we learned from those last few chapters, and if you've been coming through Isaiah, the last few chapters have been really depressing. I realize some of you have had to go into therapy just uh, after feeling the weight of those chapters. And, and well, God intends us to feel the weight of, those, of that teaching. Nonetheless, what we have learned is that God uses the world as a means of judging the church. He uses the world as the rod of his anger against an ungodly and unrighteous church. We saw that. So he uses the rod in judgment. Now, but here I want you to notice what Isaiah is doing is looking much further forward than now. He's looking to the end of the story. He's looking to the end of history. He's looking to that day when Jesus Christ will use the rod against all of his enemies, all of his enemies. He will finally knock down and chastise and judge Antichrist. He will finally knock down and chastise and judge Satan and all his works on that final day. It's looking forward to that day. And on that day, it will be demonstrated. Notice that righteousness is the belt of his waist and faithfulness is the belt of of his loins. It will be dis dis demonstrated on that day that the Messiah, Jesus, is righteous. He does what is right because he is right. He's faithful and dependable because he is true. And when the Messiah comes, people will be able to see God in action, vindicating his own people. And the rod that has so often been used by God through external powers against his own people, will on that day be turned against those who were against his people in the world. In other words, what we have here described is the kingly office of the Lord Jesus. But then thirdly, we have here the king's realm, not only the king's character and performance, but the king's realm, verses 6 to 9. The world is always looking for security and safety. And for a, la a long period of the world's history, up until very recently, the great task of men and women was to secure the place where they lived from assault and attack by deadly animals. A long period of the world. It's only, in many ways, perhaps we're winning the battle. We've managed to kill off so many reduce their numbers, make them less fierce, put them in zoos. Every now and then, an animal even in a zoo will kill its keeper, just to remind us that they are wild animals. So that's the picture. Isaiah is looking at the world as he lives in it at this point, and as so many in most of human history have lived in it. 
as we shall see. But now he's looking at the future. He's looking at the coming of the Messiah. And what he describes here is what Isaiah will later call a new heavens and earth. A restored, renewed earth. An earth in which sin and evil and all its effects have been removed. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 talks about the reign, sin reigning from Adam and death reigning from the time of Adam. Adam was meant to reign over the entire earth. He was meant to reign over the animals. They were meant to be subservient to him, to serve him. There was meant to be peace between humans and the rest of creation. But you remember in Eden that was smashed. And not only between the animal kingdom and humans, but the whole creation itself. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 8, talks about the bondage to decay. He talks about the universe we live in, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is tending towards dissolution, dissolution and decay. And this bondage to decay, he says, is built into this world. It grips this whole creation. In fact, he goes on to say that the whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. They don't know that's what it is, but it's as if they're gripped by. You see, when you're in the grip of those birth pains, you know there's no way out until the baby is born. Of course, today it's different. You get epidural things and gas and air. Christine loved gas and air. She would have been in that stuff all day long. She got high on it. I've never seen her really like that. Hey, more of that stuff. And... Uh, it was very hard feeling sympathy for her when she got high in that. Anyway, that, that's a... That's a <laughs> I'll get into trouble for that. Sorry. Um, but this is the picture. It's a picture of here is something the world cannot escape. It cannot get out of this. It's there until whatever's coming comes. And the apostle says that what creation is waiting for is the day when it's set free from its bondage to decay and obtains the freedom, the liberty of the glory of the children of God. And here's Isaiah looking down the line of history, looking across the great movements of God's purposes and the redemption of the world, moving to this place where he's able to describe nature no longer red in tooth and claw. Nature in harmony, man in harmony, together, carnivores turn to herbivores. The little child, so often in the Bible and throughout history, the child is weak, helpless, vulnerable. It, it, the, the children in past ages have, have been dispensable, disposable. But here they are central to the story. And in this chapter, this little child, so weak and helpless, vulnerable, is able to play with uninhibited delight and complete safety where once he would have been in the greatest of dangers. You see that? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The little child will play by the cobra's nest. It's a picture of harmony. Even the wolf and the lamb are so related now to each other that the, the wolf dwells, lives, you know, enters the house of the lamb. It's as if it's one of these little cartoon pictures where the wolf comes to tea and the lamb serves the tea and they're getting on famously. 
but there isn't going to be a bad ending. <laughs> As often happens in these children's stories, you know, where at the end the wolf gets the lamb or something. Sorry, sorry, sorry children. It's only imaginary. It doesn't really happen, okay? But do you see what's happening in this new heavens and new earth? It's all reversed. I remember when our Andrew, who's our second boy, was a, he was a little boy. He was seven or eight, and <clears throat> he, loved, he loved going to the zoo. He loved going to the zoo and seeing the tigers. He would go up to the, up to the enclosure, and he would climb up the little wall, and he would get onto the, the uh, railings, and he would hold the railings like this, and he would peer his head through at this tiger. He would stand there for ages drinking in this animal. He loved tigers. I was putting him to bed one night, uh, saying his prayers, tucking him in, then tickling him, which I wasn't supposed to do because that woke him up again, apparently. And, and, uh, and as I was about to leave, he said, Daddy, he said, uh, I can't wait for the new earth. I said to him, Andrew, why? He said, because I get to hug a tiger. He understood Isaiah 11. Because that is precisely what Isaiah is saying. Here is the end to this division within what God has made. The realm of the king is a realm of peace. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That refers not only to the animals, but to all the things that hurt and destroy. Nothing that hurts and destroys. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your hurts? Can you imagine the things that have happened to you in your life, the disappointments that you've had to carry over many years? Those memories that you've never really been able to overcome. Those things that destroy you internally. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the bigger picture of the world, the things that hurt and destroy, the cancers and the wars that hurt and destroy all over this world? Can you imagine that they shall not hurt? or destroy in all my holy mountain. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, in verses 10 to the end, we see the kingdom of the king. Well, the promise of the kingdom is one we discover again and again in the Bible is promised to God's Son. In Psalm 2, or Psalm 2, Carol rightly said. It says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Here in this passage, the kingdom is promised to the son of Jesse. You notice in verse 10, he's called the root. Earlier, he's called the branch or the shoot from the stump. Jesse. Here he's called the root. In other words, the Messiah is not only the offspring of David, the Messiah is the originator of David. The Messiah not only proceeds from Jesse, he precedes Jesse. He is the source of David's royal authority. He is the source of David's royal power. Indeed, he is the source of David as he is of everyone. And he shall stand, we're told. Look at verse 11. Or verse 10. He shall stand as a signal. He, that is this individual, the Messiah himself, 
shall stand as a signal for the people. Back in chapter 5, God raises an ensign, a signal to call the nations to come and dismember Judah and Jerusalem. There it was a sign of judgment. But here, the signal is the Messiah himself. He will be lifted up. Do you notice? He will stand as a signal for the nations. He will be lifted up. And in his lifting up, he will draw nations to himself. Jesus refers to this in John's Gospel, chapter 12, when he says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was speaking of the cross and the exaltation beyond the cross. And he's saying the cross is a testimony to God's faithfulness, both to punish sin and to provide redemption. The cross is both. It's at the cross that wrath and mercy meet. And Isaiah foresees a vast end times assembly. Do you notice that? A signal for the peoples to him. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. What he's saying is this, that when the Messiah comes, ultimately, at the end of history, at the end of the age, what will happen is that people will find their resting place in him. And this word, resting place here, in the book of Ruth is translated home. They'll find they are home, home at last. They've come home. They find rest. They find themselves settled at last. Some of us spend our whole lives, it seems, homeless. Oh, we have a home to live in. But we don't have somewhere where we are so completely at rest that we feel this is home. But when we come home to glory, you notice that? His resting place will be glorious, for there the glory of the Lord will be. Home is glory. And in that day the Lord, verse 11, will extend, extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of the people. He uses the names they would recognize, Assyria, Egypt, Hathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coastlands. Shinar there is there for a reason. And let me say, first of all, what the reason isn't. In Glasgow, a Shinar... Shiner, it's what you get if somebody punches you in the eye. That's not the way it's being used here. Shinar is, in fact, the ancient name for that region where Babylon, Babel first, then Babylon, was founded. Shinar represents the very first concerted attack on God. The first effort of independent humanity to organize itself in rebellion against its maker. And in that last day, all of that, wherever that is to be found in the world, all of that, from it, God will bring his elect. He will call his elect out of these places. The first gathering would be the return from the exile. The days of Ezra, Nehemiah, and others. But Isaiah is looking beyond that return from exile, right to the very end of history, to God extending his hand yet a second time. He's already doing this as he draws men and women out of the world to Jesus. And on that final day, he will do this publicly, visibly, so that every eye 
will see it. So what is, who are these people? These people are the scattered people of God, both Jews and Gentiles who gladly acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Is the church of today there? Yes, it is. One of the great blessings is that we as Gentiles are included in God's promises to Israel. Does it suggest a day when many more of the Jewish people may come to the Messiah? I think Romans 11 suggests that that may very well be the case so that all Israel will be saved. We should be praying for that, praying for a turning to the Lord Jesus by the Jewish people scattered around the earth. But the great point is that there's going to be reconciliation. The outcasts of Israel, the remnant of Judah will join with Gentiles in being drawn to the banner, the Messiah himself. Look at that, verse 12. He will raise a signal, now in poetry, for the nations, and they will assemble the banished of Israel, all gathered together. Gathered from where? From all the world. Gathered to whom? Gathered to Jesus. Let me read to you from Revelation 7. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here is the great future. Jesus the Messiah will come, and then he will come again. He has come, he will come. That's where we live. We live in between Jesus come and Jesus coming. And when Jesus comes that second time, let there be no doubt about this, what will happen? When Jesus comes that second time, he is going to right all the wrongs. He is going to bring justice at last to those who escaped justice here. When Jesus comes that second time, he is going to address the sins, the hurts, the being sinned against. He's going to address those things that you carry in your, the baggage you carry in your heart. He's going to gather his people from every part of the world, gather them together, assemble them together to himself. They're going to find their rest with him. They're going to find their home with him. On that day, he's going to deal with you and me individually. Addressing those things we've carried in our lives. And as the tears flow, he himself will wipe those tears away. And we'll be home. Home at last. And oh, that will be glory for me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you hold out before us as you do here in this great chapter of Isaiah, this glorious hope that one day we will stand before you ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, resurrected, and in a new earth with all evil banished, reconciled at last, nature reconciled, Man restored, humanity restored. Lord, we long that you would bring that day. Our hearts cry out, come, Lord Jesus.
Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.